This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Today, I have about 15 minutes to talk. I'm going to try and leave a minute or two to, for questions at the end. I'll spend some brief time about the history of the program here at Boston Children's. Then uh, we'll go through an overview of what the program is, who's followed, why they're followed. And then uh, I'll talk about some of the outcomes from the last six years. And depending on time, I'll mention a few things about resource utilization and what we're, where we're going with the program. So uh, I think of the home monitoring program as an early warning system for infants with single ventricle anatomy who have been discharged home between uh, their first and second surgeries. And we call this the interstage period. So it's the time between the first stage surgery, which we heard about this morning, um, and that's you know, typically at birth, as you already know, and the second stage surgery, which is typically between four and six months of age. So just a little bit about the background of the program here at Children's. Um, in 2004, a Sentinel paper came out of Wisconsin uh, that showed marked de decrease in interstage mortality uh, with the home monitoring program. So at that time, we had gotten really good at uh, taking care of these patients um, after their stage one surgery. Uh, the operation uh, had really improved over you know, the previous 10, 15, 20 years. We were doing quite well with post-operative care in the hospital, but we found we'd send these kids home and our mortality was still quite high. So the group at Wisconsin thought maybe if we look at some physiological parameters, specifically weights and saturations, uh, we could detect problems before they become true problems. So the following year here at Children's, we started with a stepwise uh, implementation of a home monitoring program. And we started sending patients home with oximeters, telling them to call their cardiologist if their SATs were less than 75%. Fast forward four years, um, and that's when we started the full home monitoring program, uh, which included a oximeter, a scale to follow daily weights, weekly calls from nurse practitioners, that same year, Boston Children's was a founding member of the National Pediatric Cardiology Quality Improvement Collaborative, and you'll hear more about that from Dr. Brown in the next talk. Um, the collaborative is a group of about 50 cardiac programs across the country, and their goal has been to improve the care of the infant during this interstage period. With the MPCQIC and the home monitoring program development and development in cardiac programs, um, HMP has really become a standard of care for any facility that is taking care of uh, these single ventricle infants. In 2012, we added a dedicated dietitian. For those of you um, that know Erin Keenan, she's our HMP dietitian, and that is critical as you'll see when we look at outcomes because feeding and growth has been a real one of the bigger issues with these patients. So today, October 27th, 2015, we've had over 200 patients that have come through the HMP, uh, through the home monitoring program here at Children's. And, um, oh, I skipped an important piece, so sorry. 2009, prior to implementation, our interstage mortality was 
Today it's 4% after the uh, institution of this program. Yay! Yes, that's very, that's very exciting. So let's look at um, a little description background of the program. We, at Children's, we follow uh, all infants with single ventricle anatomy, including all shunt-dependent uh, infants. So even if they haven't had arch work we, and they just have a shunt, such as patients with PAIVS or tricuspid atresia, um, we follow them in this home monitoring program. Other diagnoses, HLHS, of course, because that was sort of the founding diagnosis, um, not the founding diagnosis, but the, the patient population that we started this with. Uh, unbalanced canals, doublet inlet, uh, left ventricle, um, and then a smattering of patients with heterotaxy syndrome. And the question is, why are these patients monitored? We know from experience, you know, if you are an inpatient uh, provider or an outpatient provider, these are the patients you hear the most about that you're worried about. Um, and the reason is that uh, interstage infants are at a risk for rapid deterioration when ill. So you have a single V infant with a fever, they often look uh, very poor. Um, they don't handle a fever well. Uh, we also monitor them closely so we can detect problems early before they become uh, true problems. And we had a patient, um, I'll just call him John, uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and Mom called the floor and you know, said, I'm worried about him. His sats are a little bit lower. They were like 72, 73%. He usually runs higher, like 78%. Fussier, not eating as well. And this is a common constellation of complaints. And we actually had him come into the ED. He was intubated by that night, went to the cath lab the next day, and had uh, his BT shunt had been clotted. So uh, they dilated it. We started him on Lovenox, sent him home, and he's growing... Uh, He's doing well at home, is continuing to grow, and will come back in in two to three weeks for his stage two. Um, so because we had given, you know, and maybe some parents would have brought their kid in it anyways, but if you give them some parameters to call for, it's, we find that it helps and we can get at problems earlier. Um, the third reason is monitoring weight and nutrition patterns um, so that we can uh, optimize their growth. We know from some of the work that's been done through MPCQIC, um, that the bigger the patients are, the better they do at the second stage. Um, and finally, while uh, this is not the only, these are not the only parameters that dictate when the second surgery is, um, oxygen saturations and weight trends are part of the constellation of things we look at when we're assessing readiness for the second surgery. Um, so we do a lot of teaching with the families before they leave home. Um, and we talk about, we try to frame things as far as what are the most common problems that you're going to see. Um, and we've broken them down into six groups, uh, changes in heart function, changes in cardiac rhythm, infection, dehydration, narrowing of the pulmonary shunt, which we saw with that patient I just described. And um, the most common one is poor, poor weight gain and difficulty feeding. Um, one uh, unusual example of infection, um, but kind of highlights why watching these kids at home and giving them the scales and the oximeters are important, is a patient who uh, had a low SATs, came in, uh, was transfused because his hematocrit was low. SATs improved, we sent him back home, and within a week his SATs were low again. He was eating fine, was happy, um, 
not working hard to breathe, color was good. We still brought him in because he had low oxygen saturations. And it turned out that he had a um, babiosis infection, which is a parasite infection that comes from uh, blood transfusions. And so we were able to recognize that early. And there, previously you might have said, well, his stats are a little bit lower, but everything else is fine. Well, let's just keep watching him. But we have low threshold for anything out of the range of normal, are normal for these kids. And um, so it's just another example of what a home monitoring program can do for this patient population. You've probably gathered this already, but uh, we monitor SATs once a day. Um, parents check the, the patient's SATs at home, um, and the goal is to maintain SATs greater than 75%. Um, parents also will weigh the baby once a day um, and keep track of their feeding patterns. Average weight gain for an infant should be 20 to 30 grams per day, or approximately 150 grams per week. Um, and then we also do talk to the families about signs and symptoms of those interstage problems I just mentioned. They are given a logbook, and then they can keep track of the um, SATs and weights and feeding trends that way. Um, and they can also write any other comments or notes that they, that they observe on their child. The, to, to bring it all together for the family, we have a list of red flags that they're sent home with. We tell them to put it in key spots on the refrigerator. Um, you know, to, if they have a grandparent watching the kid, they have, send a copy with the grandparent. Um, and these are when we ask that the family calls us. So oxygen saturation is less than 75%, and that also includes things like working harder to breathe, appearing more cyanotic. Um, more agitated than usual, increased vomiting, diarrhea, eating less over the previous 24 hours, um, three poor feeds in a row. And what I tell parents when we're teaching them is that you're going to get to know what your child's norm is. But as a definition, we say a poor feed means less than half the usual volume and or taking more than 30 minutes to finish the feed. But honestly, once the family is... Um, really taking care of their child, they have a sense and they don't actually need this you know, definition, but it's a place to start. Um, we also ask them to call if there's no weight gain in three days or two days of weight loss. And the reason we differentiate between those two is that um, clinically, two days of weight loss probably raises the concern that there's dehydration, which is more of an acute problem than uh, no weight gain in three days, which um, may just mean that we need to titrate volumes or titrate calories. Finally, this one, the last one, worried that their baby just does not seem right. Seems like a very vague um, descriptor, uh, but parents know their babies very well, and this is actually a very common complaint, and we take it very seriously. So often that's the first thing that a, a baby does is just doesn't seem right, doesn't seem like themselves. And you'll, if you haven't heard this complaint from your parents at the bedside, um, it, it's unusual, uh, I will say that. Um, and I think as nurses, you're, uh, we have our own intuition and gut too, and often I'll have nurses come to me and say, this, something's off with this kid. Um, and we take that very seriously. So I think, yes, we're at the outcomes section. So we've had a little over 200 patients come through um, since we started. It was November 2009, so um, six-ish years. Um, 
51%, so about half, have um, been patients with HLHS. Um, most of the other ones have had other single ventricle anatomy, and there's been a small smattering of other high-risk anatomy. Um, we've had nine interstage deaths. Uh, that's about 4% of our uh, total group. 43 have had unplanned casts or operations, and there have been 169 readmissions. Now, some patients get readmitted mul multiple times. People who know the frequent flyers can attest to that. Um, we've had uh, about 40%, slightly shy of that, um, who have had no readmissions. And I think this is an important point when you're teaching families, um, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, that there's a good chance you're gonna be readmitted. And it doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong, you're not taking care of your child. It just means that you have a child that's very, that's a sick child. Um, and it puts things in perspective for parents. I think a lot of families hope, I think all families hope that they're not gonna be readmitted, but if you normalize it, it helps them uh, better understand what's going on. For growth and feeding outcomes, um, I find these really interesting. Uh, so a little over two-thirds actually meet the goal, which is to gain 20 to 30 grams on average per day. And I don't have this data here, but when we look at it from year to year, it hasn't changed a whole lot. It's always been sort of 67, 68, 71, 70%. And even with adding a dedicated dietitian, this has still been a challenge to get um, some of these kids to grow. And while I don't have the numbers here, I can say that there's, of the 30% that haven't met that goal, there's probably even smaller subset that only gain maybe, you know, five grams per day, seven grams per day, and then the rest are kind of close to the 20 grams. So there's this really small set of patients that just struggle, struggle, struggle. And, and probably most people can think of one or two examples of those kids that they've taken care of that just don't grow. Um, and then uh, about a third of all our patients end up with some kind of interstage tube feeding, which is also helpful for family teaching. Um, and that can be a surgically placed G-tube, J-tube, or just tempor temporarily have an NG-tube at home. Um, and one more data point that's not here, actually, is that I think, yeah, I wrote this down, um, about two-thirds of the patients that get have some interstage tube feeding actually um, still don't meet the weight gain goal, which means there's something else going on in that kid that we're not getting them to grow, and that's a big question that people are looking at. Okay, so um, once a kid, this is the other piece of outcomes, when a kid finishes the interstage period, we look at everything that has happened during that time. We look at, you know, admissions, ED admissions, hospital admissions. We look at all the, the uh, weekly calls from the nurse practitioners and the dietitian to look at what the flags have been. And the term flag and breach, it's kind of, they're a little bit muddy because we use them in several different contexts. But in this interstage review, we go through and we separate everything out into four categories. So O2 saturation, you know, did they drop um, below 75%? And for some of these patients, we actually also look if, at are they higher than 95%. Um, GI issues include a whole host of things, so decreased PO intake, um, ongoing issues with reflux symptoms, not weight you know, gaining weight the way we want them to, um, 
Intercurrent illnesses are the typical URI, UTI, um, the occasional endocarditis, and even that babiosis um, infection that we saw that one time. And then there's uh, a <clears throat> few other breaches um, or flags that we've observed uh, over time. So the whole point of this slide, in my mind, is how many issues we have with GI. Um, you know, that is over half of the reason um, that, you know, we pa patients are calling or that um, the struggles that the patients have at home. Um, and it just speaks to this whole host of other issues that are part of this disease. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org. Thank you.